You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring the best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. Today, we're trying to look into the future, let's say. And talking about what's coming up down the road. And we're going to be discussing the future of humanity. What about man and machines, molding them together. Are we going too far? Are we playing God? Should we be concerned? To discuss these, I've had bring on Fuzz Rana, who co-wrote with uh, his fellow RTB member, Ken Sampers, the book Humans 2.0. We're talking about transhumanism. Fuzz Rana is the Vice President of Research and Projects at Reasons to Believe. He is the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, Creating Life in the Lab, For Sales Design, and Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So, Dr. Rana, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast again. Uh, Nick, thanks for having me, and thank you for your interest in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, well, um, I've been with Reasons to Believe now for 20 years, uh, and uh, I also, uh, prior to that, worked with Reasons to Believe as a a volunteer. I used to uh, work in um, research and development for a Fortune 500 company. I'm a biochemist by training, and our focus at Reasons to Believe is to look at the interaction between science and the Christian faith with an emphasis on showing how discoveries in science can be used to to make a case for God's existence and for the reliability of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, that's a little bit of, about about me, but um, uh, I left my job at a Fortune 500 company um, because I felt like as a Christian there was nothing more important that I could do, uh, particularly in this day and age so strongly influenced by science, uh, other than to, to show people how science points to the reality of a creator, uh, that the show how scientific advance supports the credibility of the Christian worldview, because we live in a world where surprisingly the, the, the popular narrative, both inside the church and sadly outside the church as well, is that science and faith are in conflict. And so what I do at Reasons to Believe is to, to show at least one particular model or approach uh, that harmonizes science and Christianity in a way that supports, again, the Christian worldview. You know, you sure you didn't just leave a Fortune 500 company to make extra money? Because we all know that ministry is where you go if you want to make it rich, right? <laughs> that, that, that's exactly right. 
Hey, if you look at the the cars in the parking lot, it reasons to believe you know that nobody's making a lot of a lot of money mm-hmm. in what we're doing. <laughs> now, we're talking about the uh, idea of transhumanism of your book, Humans 2.0. So let's just start with a simple question: What is transhumanism? Yeah, well, you know, I'm finding that not a lot of people are really familiar with this idea, though the idea has been around since the early 1900s. And um, and if people are familiar with transhumanism, they they oftentimes think of it in the context of science fiction. But it's this idea that we have a moral obligation. This would be somebody that would be a die-in-the-wool transhumanist would argue that we as human beings have a moral obligation, very strong words, to use science and technology to alter our biological makeup as human beings with the hope of improving upon our design, Mm -hmm. making ourselves stronger, more intelligent, more psychologically well-adjusted with the eye towards trying to drive human progress and human flourishing, hoping to, to minimize pain and suffering with the idea, again, that science and technology are, are a pathway to create a, a utopia of our own making. And for many people that are transhumanists, the movement takes on kind of a religious nature or character where they argue that these scientific advances that could modify human beings could actually alter us in such a way to extend our life expectancy, maybe indefinitely and in doing so attain some version of immortality and so people that are transhumanists are really uh, looking to science and technology as the the mode of their salvation and so this is a an idea right out of the pages of science fiction that is becoming mainstream in academia becoming mainstream in our culture and i think for us as christians represents uh really an alternative to the gospel it's an it's an a a different type of gospel that probably will be very appealing to people who again live in a world where science and technology dominate as i was reading from the book one question just kept burning at me wanting an answer to it so badly and the question i'm sure is one that comes to me because i read the book Whose job was it to read the Iron Man comics to find out the best descriptions to use? <laughs> hey, hey, that was uh, that was my job. Mm. I read through I read through hundreds of Iron Man comics, and you know, I, I in the book we begin each chapter with a little vignette uh, from the Iron Man comics, and, mm. and part of the reason for doing that was to make the book a little bit of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a pretty heavy book, yeah, and so we wanted to. To make the book, you know, fun, at the same time that people are thinking about these very important issues, but also, um, to me, Iron Man is the quintessential transhumanist superhero. Here we have Tony Stark, who is a man of science and engineering, who has created this armor, and that armor, you know, gives him enhanced biological capabilities. Mm-hmm. But, but. Tony Stark continually looks at ways to improve the armor to the point where he becomes, over time, integrated with the armor itself, where the delineation between Tony Stark and Iron Man become less and less clear. And interestingly enough, you know, Marvel comics are wonderful because they take on the issues of the day. Uh, they explore the issues of the day that we're confronted with as a culture, 
Uh, and as part of that, there was there's a very good discussion throughout the pages of the Iron Man comics about mm. uh, our role uh, in relationship with technology. Uh, again, bringing up many of the the ethical themes that really we're we're confronted with today when we start thinking about uh, the transhumanist vision. So to me, it was a fun way to to introduce each chapter, but. The hope was that those vignettes began to highlight in a, in a fun, playful way some of the very real, serious ethical issues connected with uh, the transhumanist vision uh, as, a, as a way just to get people uh, into, the, into the contents of the chapter. Uh, I would say it was certainly very entertaining. I look forward to the start of each chapter at least because I knew I'd be getting something about Iron Man, which I am a big fan of Iron Man movies. I, yeah. And I'm I'm just getting this picture right now of you sitting in a chair in your living room reading comic books and saying, and here your wife saying, "Honey, can you take out the trash? Not now, dear. Doing research for the book." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I wasn't able to expense the comic books though, mm-hmm. and, and charge it to the RTV budget. But, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge comic book buff, and mm-hmm. so this was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, again, playing mm-hmm. around with with the, the Iron Man themes. But, you know, this is something that I think is, is I think, it, uh, valuable to point out uh, in a serious sense, and that is that, you know, for many people, this idea of transhumanism really seems much more like science fiction than reality. And, and, and because it's been, you know, used as a theme or as a motivation in, you know, science fiction, including things like comic books, we actually have a head start, uh, both as Christians and non-Christians, in terms of engaging transhumanism. But uh, and and so that is a, a good thing uh, to have that head start, to have that that awareness that that has been created by science fiction. But on the other hand, I think it also makes us tend to dismiss uh, the the reality of transhumanism. We we can't see it as being something that is a reality in front of us and in some respects it almost may make some of the claims from transhumanism something that that we have become conditioned to hearing and so we're not as alarmed maybe as we should actually be mm-hmm. yeah as i do have these concerns when you start talking about this whole thing i mean i was reading for this book and i thought with some things about that sounds like a pretty good thing mm-hmm. that could happen. And as I'm sitting here talking with you, I I happen to have a steel rod on my spine, so I'm sitting here up straight and able to function normally because I am I have some technology in me, let's say, and that wouldn't have been possible a hundred years ago. I mean, should mm-hmm. I be upset about that? Well, you know, this is the thing, uh, Nick, that you're you're really uh, ably pointing out, and that is that this is very complex because mm-hmm. the the technologies that are fueling the transhumanist vision, in and of themselves, are really wonderful technologies that could be in, that could be transformative. 
Mm-hmm. That really could mitigate enormous amount of pain and suffering, could improve the quality of people's lives. And so as somebody who is a Christian, I'm excited to see these advances taking place. And I see these advances as representing really tools available to us as Christians to carry out the mission that God has given to us uh, in terms of, of, uh, of spreading or expanding the influence of the kingdom of God into the world where we, we do things to, to, to promote human flourishing, to, to mitigate human pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And so these are, these are wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, but in and of themselves, these technologies that have biomedical use are very are complicated in and of themselves, and, and some of their applications, even in a biomedical context, do raise some ethical concerns. But these very technologies that could be used for, uh, again, treating genetic disorders, for treating people that are quadriplegics and paraplegics, amputees, and so on, could also you know be used for human enhancement purposes and to really fuel the, the transhumanist vision. And, you know, these technologies are very powerful, but they also are increasingly becoming less and less expensive and easier and easier to deploy so that it's not just simply the, quote unquote, scientific elites that have access to the technology and to and control the use of the technology. There's a very strong movement that's emerging, fueled again by the transhumanist vision in part for kind of broader accessibility of the technology for people who are non-elites, who are non-experts, with the idea that everybody should have access to the technology, everybody should have the opportunity, because we are autonomous, to, to use that technology on ourselves in any way that we, we so desire. And so this is where I think, you know, some of the, the very real concerns associated with the transhumanist vision come into play. Mm-hmm. I was also watching a video from my wife the other day. We we turned on and saw David Wood from Acts 17 Apologetics had a new video, and I'm not sure if you know him, but he's got two sons with genetic disorders. And about there's a possible cure on the way, and involves one of the things you talk about, something along the lines of gene splicing. Yeah. And so once again, I'm looking at thing But yeah, I mean, my my condition could have been could be, you know, it'd be painful and hard for me to live walking like a hunchback, but it's not life-threatening. And they would say, you know, this could be around for my kids in a couple of years. They might already be dead by then. I don't know. But, uh, again, you know, when it comes to something life-saving, in one hand, I understand your concern, but on one hand, still, we should all support it, too. Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean, the approach that we take uh, in in the book is not uh, a typical approach in the sense that we're not really uh, looking to condemn the technology, mm-hmm. uh, or or but on the other hand, we're not just simply giving the technology a free pass, mm-hmm. but rather we're we're, ta- we're we're looking at how do we effectively engage the technology with the mm-hmm. idea that we want to make sure that the technology is developed and is available. Uh, so that it, we can indeed use it to, to treat people who suffer from just horrific, you know, diseases that are due to genetic disorders. I mean, for example, there's a somewhere between five to ten thousand genetic disorders that we have cataloged 
that correspond to a mutation in a single gene. And the CRISPR gene editing technique is very, very powerful in terms of treating potentially those kinds of genetic disorders. And so, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that where possible, those technologies that are, are available to us are developed and used in, in the best possible ways. But on the other hand, you know, the, the CRISPR gene editing could be applied uh, in principle to eliminate genetic disorders from the human gene pool. Mm-hmm. Now, this is who, who doesn't want that to happen? But the pathway to do that is to do uh, manipulations on human embryos where you'd have to create embryos with in vitro fertilization and <clears throat> know ahead of time that those em- that the parents have a particular genetic uh, di- you know disorder that could likely be passed on to their offspring. So the parents would have to go through genetic screening. They would create embryos. Those embryos would be gene edited. They would then in turn be screened to make sure that that only the embryos that have been effectively gene edited persist. If there's any uh, mistakes in the gene editing process, those embryos would have to be destroyed as well. And so you're you're kind of doing a type of gene screening. And then you're, you're doing a genetic selection on embryos that you have manipulated genetically to, to try to eliminate that particular gene or that defective version of the gene. And, and of course, now the children that are born from that uh, child that has been gene edited will be free from the genetic disorder. And so the thought is that if, if something like this could be applied you know, consistently and uniformly across, you know, a large portion of the human population, we could dramatically, we could eliminate or dramatically reduce the prospects of, of genetic disorders in the human gene pool. But the pathway to achieve that uh, involves, again, you know, creating and manipulating and uh, selecting and destroying embryos. And, and so you can begin to see where some of the, the very real ethical concerns arise in conjunction with uh, the gene editing technique, it, that's very different than saying here, somebody is an adult and let's say they suffer from cystic fibrosis or they, they um, even if they're a child and they suffer from cystic fibrosis, to, to do limited gene editing on, on the adult uh, where you would deliver the gene editing package uh, to lung cells and correct the, gene, the genetic disorder that causes cystic fibrosis. It would be a temporary fix, most likely, because the cells in the lungs are turning over, and so those cells that you've altered the genetic makeup of are going to live for a period of time and die and be replaced by cells that do have, again, that same genetic disorder. But if you could, uh, you know, over time apply that tech, that treatment, you could dramatically mitigate the symptoms, you know, of that particular genetic disorder uh, without fundamentally you know, altering the, the genetic makeup of that, of that individual. And mm-hmm. so that, to me, would be a, a really good use of, of the gene editing technique in, in, in to treat disorders. But it's not going to cure people of the disorder, but it would represent a significant uh, leap forward in, in the treatment. Mm-hmm. So this is, the, this is the ethical complexity, and we not even have talked at this point about using gene editing to enhance human beings' you know, physically or intellectually, we're just simply talking about using it in a biomedical context. Yes, and there's also the danger involved sometimes that if this kind of thing happens, that people 
such as, say, my own self, who are disabled, could be identified as disposable, less human. You know, you mm-hmm. think of a society of haves and the have-nots. Yeah, yeah, and and you're, again, you're you're bringing up a really important point: is that this kind of technology, even if it's applied in a biomedical sense, where the goal is to try to eliminate genetic disorders, we're not even talking again about human enhancements at this point. Uh, it really opens up a, a a pathway to potentially some type of high tech eugenics, where we're not discriminating against people of a particular ethnic group but rather people who who ha- suffer from genetic disorders mm-hmm. where you know if you are not willing to undergo the treatment or the you know the genetic alteration you would be would be discriminated against or or or, uh, or <laughs> we would try to eliminate people who have those genetic disorders uh, you know before they even are born and in fact there's already this happening in Iceland you know in Iceland the Incidents of Down's birth are very, very low, and of course, Down syndrome is the result of uh, what's called trisomy for chromosome 21, where there's an extra copy of chromosome 21, and you can do, um, you know, screening in ve- in, uh, in sorry in utero to determine if a child has, uh, you know, Down syndrome, and and so what's happening in Iceland is there's very heavy-handed. Uh, genetic counseling done, and and almost invariably, all women subject themselves to this type of screening, and a very very high percentage, if they discover that their child is a Down's child, will abort the child, and so they've effectively eliminated Down syndrome, uh, in in Iceland. But the cost of doing that is essentially by destroying people that are, have a genetic disorder, and so you could argue that this is a form of eugenics. Right. This is eugenics targeting people that have a, a genetic anomaly, uh, and and you can easily see this becoming more and more widespread as we start implementing, uh, you know, gene editing, particularly when we start looking at doing this at an embryo stage. Uh, you know, uh, there's a great um, book that I read as part of my research on for writing this book called um, This Mortal Flesh. Uh, by uh, Brant Waters, who's a Christian theologian, and uh, it's essentially a book about biotechnology, and and he is very insightful in terms of what he sees to be some of the very real ethical concerns. But his his one of the points that he makes is that we really, with th- this kind of gene editing capability, are moving into a an arena where there will be very real, or the, the potential is very real for discrimination against people who now have genetic disorders as if they are uh, an unnecessary burden on society. Uh, and, and you could easily see horrific futuristic scenarios where people like that would be marginalized, would be completely devalued, dehumanized. And so this is a, a, a very real concern that is attached to some incredibly powerful and incredibly exciting technology that could again be used for an enormous amount of good and so this is our challenge as christians is how do we engage these technologies in a way that we influence their use for the good and and help to, for people to see their potential misuse and and how this misuse could 
lead to marginalizing human beings, devaluing human beings, mm. and exploiting human beings. There was a time that Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure is on very good terms of reasons to believe, uh, had uh, received a tweet or an email, I think it was a tweet, someone asking, we just found out our, our baby will have Down syndrome, what should we do? And he said, abort and try again. I mean, it's just simple like that, and it does get to a scary point if you, when you think humans are disposable like that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and, and for example, you also have people like Peter Singer, who mm-hmm. is considered to be one of the world's preeminent bioethicists, mm-hmm. who, um, who has a, partic- a utilitarian view of, of human of ethics, and, and, you know, his motivation is not a bad motivation to minimize pain and suffering, you know, but he argues that that pain and suffering that should be minimized is for sentient beings, and therefore argues that the fetus, uh, even infants up to two years of age, are not truly sentient, and so if they have genetic disorders, we should essentially, uh, you know, destroy them. They should be, we should either abort or create or perform infanticide, and we're actually doing them a favor by minimizing the pain and suffering that they're going to experience and in, and of course he he argues as an atheist that there are other creatures that have who are sentient that actually have more rights than than does a a, a fetus or than does an infant up to 2 years of age a human infant up to 2 years of age uh, but this, this is a kind of ethical framework sadly that much of this biotechnology is evaluated by uh, there's not really uh, a very good you know f- secular ethics um, th- that can actually guide us effectively in utilizing the technology i mean ultimately all the whether it's utilitarianism or consequentialism uh, what you're looking at are ethical systems that do not have inherent in them the capacity to protect those people that are marginalized, those people that don't have power or don't have a voice. And this is where the Christian worldview becomes so very important. And so it's our, it's again, the obligation we have as, as Christians is to, I think, engage this technology, helping to shape how it's used. And that means that we've got to understand the technology, we have to understand the ethical complexities, and we can't shy away from engaging it, but we've got to do it with a, a credible, insightful voice, uh, and, and also in a way that people realize that we're not anti-science or anti-technology, we're actually pro-science and pro-technology, it's just that we want to make sure that it's used in the best possible way, in the most just, in the most equitable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I just get so concerned when I hear about that, because... It sounds like people are Peter Singer style and such have decided some people's lives aren't worth living and I honestly enjoy so much of my life and I just want to say, excuse me, who are you to look at me and say, because I have a disability, my life isn't worth living? You know, very well said and, you know, and to me, you know, why should it be that, um, you know, minimizing pain and suffering mm-hmm. is the... Um, is the, the standard for what we determine <laughs> the value of a human's existence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's, to, who's to say that pain and suffering don't have meaning, don't have purpose, 
and and who's to say that a, a person that does experience pain and suffering can also experience joy, can also experience pleasure, but also can have a, a, a meaning and purpose to to their existence. And so this is where the Christian worldview comes into play because it it argues that every human being has inherent worth and value. Every human being has uh, something to offer. Every human being has meaning and purpose to their existence, uh, and um, you know, and that um, you know that pain and suffering actually uh, have meaning in, in in purpose as well. That it's not uh, without that pain and suffering is never without purpose. And so, the Christian worldview has a lot to say. You know, when it comes to start how we think about these technologies. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Justin Briley of the Unbelievable Radio Show and Podcast, recommending another podcast to you. Nick Peters is a deep thinker, a friend of mine, and he has an inspiring faith. So you should listen to him and his excellent guests on the Deeper Waters Show. So keep going deeper and keep getting uh, wetter, I guess. Blessings, Nick. Keep up the good work. Now let's talk some about the uh, possible enhancements that can come along too, because in many ways to me, some of these sounded very good. And my wife has short-term memory loss problems. I could just picture how awesome it would be for her to get to have something done that's memory enhancement so she could remember things easier again. And although it wouldn't be necessary for me, there was a point I thought, it would be kind of cool to be able to read through all these books much faster and memorize so much more of it yeah well you know <laughs> i mean you know in in many respects who doesn't want mm-hmm. to be you know to have an to be enhanced if you will yeah i mean because we all have biological limits whether they're it has to do with our physical strength and agility mm-hmm. whether it has to do with our intellectual capability uh, you know psychological well-being and so you know again there's i don't think there's anything wrong with using you know technology to uh, to augment our capabilities as human beings. In fact, that's been our relationship with technology since our creation. We are creatures that have developed technology and have used technology as the means by which we have, in a sense, become the dominant species on the planet. And so we have a a, a relationship with technology, and every technology we develop is meant to. In, extend our capabilities beyond our biological limits. We get into automobiles and we can drive much further in a shorter period of time than we could ever hope to walk. Or we get into airplanes and that allows us in very short order to travel from one part of the world to another part of the world. Or you and I are talking right now, uh, and even though we're on two different, you're on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast uh, of the United States, and so technology is something that we use already to enhance ourselves. Now, what makes transhumanism a little icky is that we are looking at modifying ourselves with the technology for the enhancement. So there's something that is permanent or semi-permanent uh, where we begin to meld ourselves with the technology. But in a sense, we already are doing that to some degree with smartphones, though they're not implanted in us. Most people now don't leave the house without a smartphone by their side constantly where we have come to depend upon the smartphone to extend our, our biological capabilities so you know 
there's nothing, I guess, inherently wrong with enhancements, but as a Christian, knowing that human beings are made in God's image, it seems to me that there is a, a line that we could cross, though I, to this point in time, don't know exactly where that line is, but intuitively I sense there probably is a line that we could cross where the enhancement becomes more than just simply uh, the, the good use of technology and become something maybe more problematic or more insidious. Yeah, I think we can, most of us start off with good intentions, we can see something going wrong with it as soon as technology arises. I mean, go back to the comics when the first Iron Man movie came out a few years ago. Here, Tony Stark makes this great suit, and his business partner says, hey, I've got an idea. He makes his own suit and goes on a rampage, and the technology was just right there. I mean, the same thing happens in all the other movies, that the technology that, that Tony Stark builds, no doubt for good, leads to great evil as well. Yeah, and, and you know, this is, to me... Uh, Highlighting what I think to be the, the naivety of, of of the transhumanist vision, and that is that they're looking uh, to science and technology as the the means to create a utopian future, and ultimately the means for salvation. Uh, some scholars will refer to this as techno faith, where our faith is being placed in what science and technology can achieve. And you know, as you point out. Uh, Nick, so so well. Uh, when you look at the history that we have as human beings with technology, it really is an uneasy history, uh, where technology has been used for enormous amount of good, but it also always has untended consequences associated with it. And so, while technology can many times free us from the requirements of manual labor. Uh, in exchange, we very quickly become enslaved to that technology. You know, so we live in a world today where we are, where again, the satellite technology and the in the internet has has made our lives incredible. But if there is an electromagnetic pulse that goes through the atmosphere and disables satellites or disables the electrical grid, we are actually going to be in really really bad shape because we've become so dependent upon. This technology that has, you know, done incredible things for the quality of our lives and for our productivity. So technology liberates us, but at the same time, it enslaves us. And many times, technologies will create problems that never existed uh, prior to that technology. And, and and so, while it may solve one problem, it many times technology creates again new problems that never existed and sometimes those new problems are actually worse than the the problem originally meant to solve you know to be solved and what do we do we develop new technology to solve these problems that our technology has created and we wind up in this vicious cycle you know one um, philosopher of technology that i read compares our relationship to technology like a person in quicksand where we, the, the more we try to get out of the quicksand, the deeper we find ourselves, you know, immer immersed into the, into the quicksand, the more trapped we become. And that's how he views the relationship with technology. And so, you know, technology always has these unattended consequences. But then, to your point, people can misuse technology. Uh, and to think that people won't is, is really, you know, uh, uh, unreasonable. 
you know, uh, transhumanism and the idea of techno faith is really built upon what scholars call the myth of progress, which is this idea that as human beings we are in, in, in you know, inevitably moving towards greater and greater human progress and human flourishing, and that technology is just the means to accelerate that movement towards uh, towards a utopian type future. And I think the idea of the myth of progress for most scholars that work in the history and the philosophy of technology is something that they would reject, where mm-hmm. they would point out that that World War II really put an end to this idea of, of the myth of progress. Mm-hmm. Let's talk some about neural prosthetics, brain-computer interfaces, and a prospect of a cybernetics future, but chapter of that, the second chapter of my book, now, I, I'm a big gamer. I, I love playing my games. Usually my wife and I turn on the TV or watch them together. I'm playing a game at the same time. And I can think, gosh, it'd be so interesting to live in a world where I could just, you know, put something on my head and then lo and behold, the game knows what I'm thinking and responds accordingly to what I'm thinking. And some of you might think, well, that sounds like a fun technology, but how can it really help you in the real world where people who have locked-in syndrome, where they can't escape their bodies, as it were, they're locked in, that would be a huge help to them. Yeah, and, you know, um, computer brain interface technology like gene editing uh, can be used for enormous amount of good, but we can also see how it could also be mis- misused or have... Mm-hmm. Uh, some very real unintended consequences. And as you're pointing out, for somebody who suffers from a, a brain injury or a stroke and is locked in and unable to communicate, the idea that the use of computer brain interfaces where computer hardware is either um, uh, accessed through um, uh, like a, a modified EEG cap or it can be implanted on the surface of the brain or into the brain itself uh, that, that this technology can be used to allow people with their thoughts to control to control computer software and computer hardware, and so for somebody that is locked in, this is is not something that where the technology would dehumanize them, but would help them to recover some of the their the humanity that they've lost because of this injury, and so uh, a wonderful thing or somebody that is an amputee to be able to control a robotic limb with their their thoughts mm-hmm. and even develop a sense of ownership of that limb would be incredible or somebody that's a quadriplegic or a paraplegic to gain mobility through the use of an exoskeleton that again could be controlled with their thoughts would be just incredible or or you you could even see the technology being used for for maybe less significant biomedical applications but for just fun applications like you're saying with gaming i don't see any problem with you know using computer brain interface technology in that way uh and so it's it's really really a wonderful thing but to where transhumanists become really excited isn't so much this this idea of again using machines to enhance ourselves enhance our, our physical capabilities. You know, you mentioned your wife suffering from short-term memory issues. Well, I mean, some people even think that computer brain interfaces could help people to have improved cognition and improved memory. Mm-hmm. There's been studies done with Alzheimer's patients showing 
that uh, electrical stimulation of certain areas of the brain can improve that prognosis. People with Parkinson's can be treated effectively with, again, computer brain interface technology and the delivery of electrical stimulation to certain areas of the brain. These are wonderful, wonderful applications, uh, but you could easily see somebody using that to enhance themselves, their cognitive ability or their, their intellectual ability. And again, I don't know that there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. Uh, if, if, you know, I, I don't see that as being fundamentally problematic. But where things become weird is the idea that through computer brain interfaces, that as human beings, we suddenly can become delocalized for, uh, from our bodies. So, for example, there have been studies done with lab animals where you have two rats where they each have computer brain interfaces implanted in them. And one rat is trained to activate a lever and by doing so gets a reward. The other rat is untrained. And if you take that untrained rat and you put it into a cage where if it activates the lever, it will get a reward. And the other rat is able to observe that, that rat that is untrained but cannot access the lever. That rat, through, it, through the computer brain interface, and again, you know, Bluetooth technology and the, inter, uh, and the internet can actually communicate to the rat that is untrained what to do. And that rat will activate the lever to get the reward. And so you have through computer brain interfaces where brains can now be tethered together, where the, 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 the activity of one brain can influence the behavior and the action of another creature uh, with, again, that computer brain interface. And people have done a similar experiment with human subjects where you have two people in remote parts of the, of the world where they both are viewing on the computer a video game where mm -hmm. one person in a remote location has access to the joystick uh, where he can physically access the joystick, uh, you know, affecting something on the screen. And the other test subject can't, has learned how to control the joystick, the, the activity in the computer uh, um, with his thoughts. He can control the joystick or he's learned how to control the joystick with his thoughts. And so he can watch the game and with his thoughts tell the person on the other part of the world what to do with the joystick, um, again, because their, their brains are tethered together. And, and this is very exciting for people that are transhumanists where they see this as a stepping stone to uploading our minds, if you will, into a computer framework. They see this as a very significant advance towards that end, where suddenly we now can influence events uh, and be completely delocalized. And so people like Mitch Shukaku, uh, the famous physicist, or people like uh, Elon Musk are looking at commercializing what they're calling the brain net. Elon Musk just formed a company called Neuralink, where he's looking at, again, using um, uh, computer brain interface technology for these kind of applications. Or, you know, um, uh, Kaku speculates that one day there will be a brain net where we all will be tethered together with these computer brain interfaces and, and, and internet technology where, you know, you and I can exchange ideas through our thoughts alone, Nick, and mm. uh, and that you could, through virtual reality, have an experience that you never had, and then 
share that experience with me as if I would have had that experience that never actually happened. And so you can begin to see where this kind of application of the technology goes from kind of benign gaming applications uh, or very important biomedical applications to something that really begins to raise questions about our identity as a, as a human being. And again, it's, it, it's kind of advances like this that could really create, uh, I think, loss of identity as, as human individuals and uh, could be horrifically exploited. Uh, and, you know, and I think is really, from a Christian worldview perspective, really creates questions about uh, what does it mean to, to be creatures made in the image of God when, when we become that delocalized and allow our ourselves to be influenced by the, the thinking of other people in a literal sense. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about the uh, making prosthetic limbs that can respond to your thought and all sorts of something, yeah, it does sound very good, and of course it does, and then there's a problem of thinking, and then there's Dr. Octopus as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> who, yeah, I mean, who has a computer brain interface that controls these, uh, you know, these robotic arms, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> now, another fascinating aspect being looked at is anti-aging. And to me, this sounds really good because, like I said, I enjoy my life. I'm turning 39 later on this month. Yes, literally 39. I don't mean the Jack Benny 39. And uh, I still like to run everywhere I go, not for exercise, just because, hey, it's fun. Anti-aging sounds really good. I mean, way we could live our, expand our lifespan, so we could live even longer than we do right now. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, well, you know, um, from my perspective, anti-aging technology could very well make transhumanists of us all, even the most cautious among us. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to using gene editing to enhance our, you know, physical strength or intellectual capability, we have some pause for thought because we are modifying our genetic makeup, and that would make us a little uncomfortable. Or uh, you know, if, if apart from somebody that is suffering from an injury or from a disease who needs the technology, I think the idea of interfacing ourselves with a machine very well might make some of us, again, a bit uncomfortable. Uh, um, but when it comes to anti-aging, we all are obsessed with trying to live longer and healthier and higher quality lives. Uh, everybody is obsessed with doing what we can to, to the way uh, and stave off the aging process. Uh, and we all want to live as long as we possibly can. Uh, and uh, and so the idea of developing technology that could um, that could actually arrest the aging process or even reverse it is very alluring, but yet it's very much part of the transhumanist vision. Well, again, we would use technology to extend our life expectancy and, and hopefully attain some type of immortality. But the fallout of dramatically extending human life expectancy is far-reaching in terms of the societal impact, the economic impact, and even the relationships that we have um, uh, with one another and between generations would all be turned literally upside down. And again, I think the idea of anti-aging makes the transhumanist vision 
very alluring for people who otherwise would be highly skeptical about it. And in fact, you know, the, the progress that we're making in the biology of aging is incredible, and we're already beginning to explore anti-aging techniques. Uh, I haven't read the, the, the journal article yet. I just saw headlines, and I, if I get some, some time this weekend, I'm going to dig into these articles. But there's a research group that produced a, a cocktail that they administered to a number of people and discovered that those people actually saw the, not only aging arrested, but actually reversed their aging process where they, uh, they literally uh, were younger <laughs> as a result of these treatments. And this was on a small scale. And it seems, again, almost too good to be true. It's almost like the type of thing you'd see on late night TV. Mm-hmm. But this is an example of how we are making these kind of anti-aging breakthroughs that, again, fuel this, this idea of human enhancements and, and, you know, um, and the transhumanist vision where really we should think about anti-aging as being a human enhancement uh, technology just like we would think of gene editing or computer brain interfaces in that way. Mm-hmm. And once again, we're talking about counterexamples we could use. I, I know it's not a one-to-one parallel, but I'm thinking about go back to some of your, I think, DC comics, and you have Lazarus Pit mm-hmm. showing up, where wicked people can use this to prolong their own lifespan so we can keep doing more and more. And hey, if you were someone like, say, Joseph Stalin back in the day, you had access to this, where who knows what harm you could do. Yeah, well, you know, and you're, you're bringing up a really profound point, and that is that, you know, one of the big issues with this emerging technology even in a biomedical context, is access. Mm-hmm. Who gets access to the technology? Because um, the, you know, there's just limited medical resources that we have available, and the cost of medical care is becoming uh, more and more expensive. And so the net effect is that uh, not everybody gets access to all the technology benefits that mm-hmm. we have in medicine. And this already is a very serious problem that is, you know, creates inequity. And typically what happens are people that are already advantaged, that are socio socio and economically advantaged, are the ones that tend to get access to the technology, which means that they have, you know, even greater <laughs> benefit, they, they have even a, a greater uh, advantage than, than people that, that can't afford those technologies. Well, now if we start talking about enhancements, uh, then then again, it's going to be people that are socioeconomically advantaged that are going to be able to enhance themselves, which creates even greater advantage. And so you very quickly wind up with a stratification of society where there is the technology haves and have nots. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, with anti-aging technology, again, when you start developing, again, that that technology, it's going to be people that can afford it that are going to be able to benefit from it. And you very quickly, again, create this stratification where there's going to be people that live longer and other people that live ba- basically relatively short lifespans and are going to pass away, where you very well could create a category of human beings that are, in effect, immortal. Uh, there's a, a, a science fiction show that's based on a, a science fiction novel uh, on Netflix called Altered Carbon. And I don't know that I would recommend the, 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 the series. It's a very graphic series and very edgy and 
and mm. you know, for somebody who's a Christian, yeah. they could very well be offended by this. But I, I watched the series because the themes in the, the- in the series were all about, uh, again, the, the, a transhumanist vision of the future, where they basically had these things called stacks that were like these discs that were implanted at the base of a person's uh, neck. And it essentially was their personality and their memories that were uh, stored in that stack. And so when the person's body, when they, they, their body dies, their stacks will still remain alive. And so they called bodies sleeves, and the stacks were really who those people were. So after somebody would die, when another body became available, they could actually implant their stack into that body and again, you know, continue to live. Well, people in that society who were extremely wealthy, they called them the meths after Methuselah, mm-hmm. actually had the ability to back up their stacks and they could create clones of themselves. So in a sense, they attained through cloning and, and by being able to back up the stacks so that if anything happened to the stacks and it was damaged, that they could essentially resurrect from the, the dead, uh, essentially became immortal and those were the people that had all the power in the in the society and were basically exploiting everybody else. Uh, and so, you know, these are the kinds of things that I think uh, really present themselves as, as ethical issues when it, we start e- thinking about anti-aging technology is that you, you really wind up with, again, the possibility of this being exploited so that people uh, who... Um, attain immortality uh, are going to all because as christians we understand human beings are sinful if you have immortality um and a capacity to sin the likelihood is that you are going to perpetrate quite a bit of damage on people uh, because in a sense you've almost become godlike yourself uh, and, and so, if, there, if there's not, if death isn't a consequence that you face, um, then you know what's the, what's the to keep you from perpetrating evil over time. Uh, and so, you can easily see people that are the most wicked living the longest, almost echoing essentially what we see in the Genesis six uh, account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking with all this that if the fall had never taken place, we wouldn't be raising these issues. We just look and say, oh, cool, look at all these advances, and there'd be no problem. Yeah, you know, and this again is something that I think um, uh, reflects the naivety of transhumanists. It's, they're, not, they're doubly naive, one, in, in terms of thinking that somehow technology is going to lead to human progress but the the other uh, place of naivety is to neglect the fact that human beings are sinful and you know because of our sinful nature anything that we can do to misuse technology and the power that goes along with it we most likely are going to do that you know human beings have this propensity to take even the best things and use them for the most horrific purposes. And, and, and you know, I mentioned briefly World War II, which put an end to this myth of progress, but that World War II, I think, exemplifies really uh, just how technology can be used and misused. And, you know, when we look at nuclear power, 
that has enormous amount of good beneficial use, not only in terms of powering, you know, generating electricity that we can use to, to, to power, you know, the contemporary world, but, you know, nuclear uh, chemistry and in nuclear physics are being used in a biomedical arena for imaging and for uh, treatment of cancer and things like that. But yet, on the other hand, um, you know, nuclear power can, or nuclear technology, if there are accidents, can cause enormous amount of damage to the environment and human lives. And then if, if, if willfully used for, you know, wicked purposes can create enormous amount of death and destruction, as was witnessed, I think, uh, during World War II. You know, in the dropping of, of the hydrogen bomb and the atom bomb on Japan. Now, you know, I'm not here to, to debate the ethics of that, other than to say that just highlights uh, how technology that can be used for enormous amount of good can also be horrifically misused. Mm-hmm. And the more powerful the technology, the more horrific the misuse. And the technology that we're looking at right now with computer brain interfaces and genetic engineering and anti-aging technology are very powerful technologies that could be misused in, in horrific ways to create a dystopian future uh, more so than a utopian future. Honestly, it sounds almost like we're discussing a science fiction novel or movie right now because so many of these, it seems to take place where you've got this future about everything's good and pure and we finally moved past all these great evils that we've suffered and now let's go do a scientific experiment and oh my gosh what just went wrong here everything's gone to heck again yeah yeah well you know this this is you know why i think it's it's so important for christians to be able to articulate uh again the the naivety of techno faith in the idea that somehow science and technology are going to save us because as i said i think transhumanism is going to become uh, an alternate gospel and if it's not already and is going to be a chief competitor to the christian gospel we already live in a world that is so strongly influenced by science and technology people have enormous amount of respect for for scientists and what science can deliver and uh, people already turn to technology to try to solve the problems that we face in the world. And so it would be very natural, I think, for people in that milieu to turn to, um, to science and technology as a way to attain our salvation, for the way for us to, to generate or to create some kind of, of hopeful, you, you know, utopian type of future. So it's going to be a very alluring message. And this is why I think it's so important for Christians to become familiar with the literature in the history and the philosophy of technology, because most people that write in that area understand the complexity of our relationship with technology and and how technology has been both good as well as bad for humanity and can and understands the, the capacity of technology to do again enormous amount of damage if it winds up in the wrong hands. And when you couple that, that our experience throughout history with technology, with the idea that human beings are sinful, uh, it, it is incredibly naive to think that somehow our salvation is going to uh, rely in what science and technology can achieve. Mm-hmm. And so this is, a, a, is going to be something that's very important for Christians to be able to articulate and articulate well mm-hmm. as, as we look to engage 
our culture that is going to be more and more influenced uh, by the transhumanist vision. Well, you're around the halfway point of our show. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Dr. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe on talking about the book he co-wrote with Ken Sampras, Humans 2.0. So today we're discussing transhumanism, but if you're here next week, we're discussing transgenderism. We're going to have Michelle Cortella. She's done a lot of medical research on talking about transgenderism. What is the effect of all these hormones these kids are receiving at a young age? Is this really something good, or is it something we should be concerned about? So we're going from transhumanism to transgenderism next week. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Rana talking about transhumanism. And Now, one of the things you make this interesting in this book is an interesting statement. You raise a question question is, are we playing God? And whatever your answer is, yeah, we are. We've been doing that for quite a long time, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, you know, um, and one of the things that I think uh, is missing, if I may be so bold as to say this, from, uh, from evangelical scholarship at this point, is I think a robust theology for uh, technology and emerging biotechnologies. Uh, and, and to me, I think our first reaction when we start thinking about using technology to modify other organisms, this is part of a, a broader program called synthetic biology, or using technology to, to modify our biological makeup as human beings, our first reaction is to say that we, to condemn that work and to say as human beings we shouldn't play God. And I think what actually people mean when they say that is that we shouldn't take God's place. Because I would actually contend that as human beings made in God's image, we have no choice but to play God. And, and what I mean by that is that as human beings, we uniquely bear God's image. And I take a, 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 a resemblance view or a structuralist view of the image of God and that I think the image of God refers to certain capabilities that we have that are manifested in terms of our cognitive abilities and our our, our inherent morality and things like that that flow out of this immaterial essence that we have that that I again would call the image of God, uh, and uh, and and because we bear God's image, uh, when we create, when we invent, when we design, we are manifesting the image of God. This is something that only human beings can do uniquely, uh, and that that activity actually glorifies God. And so, because we bear God's image and have certain unique capabilities compared to other animals, we can study the world around us. 
and through that see the handiwork of the creator, but also learn about the world and then take that knowledge and apply it to develop technology. And so science and technology are activities that I think properly glorify God. And also because we bear God's image, uh, we have been granted certain responsibilities to uh, subdue the earth and bring it under our control and to to multiply and to fill the earth and to be caretakers of the planet. And, and, and to me, that those mandates that were given uh, in, in the Genesis 1 creation account are, again, mandates that uniquely apply to human beings because we bear God's image. But, but the, the idea was that we were to cover the earth with, with human beings that, that displayed the image of God and in doing so bring glory to God that we were to take the order in the Garden of Eden and convert the chaos outside of the Garden of Eden into order. And that meant that we, you know, had to subdue the creation and bring it under our control. And in order to do that, we had to develop an understanding of the world and develop technology uh, that, that to care for the planet, we have to understand the world and develop technology. So there's a very strong mandate that flows out of the image of God concept for science and technology, and for for uh, human beings to to uh, develop this science, scientific understanding, and technology as part of the dominion that we can that we are to exercise over the creation. So, to me, it, the the question isn't should we play God? We have no choice but to play God because we bear the image of God, and because of the the commands that were given to us in Genesis one as as humanity, we should play God. The problem, of course, is trying to take God's place, and this is what you see in the Garden of Eden, is that human beings wanted to eat from the, the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil to be like God ourselves, and, and we're trying to take God's place. And this is the issue that we see with the, the construction of the Tower of Babel, was we were trying to take God's place. And so this is the concern that we have, you know, when we think about, you know, applications uh, in gene editing and computer brain interface technology is, are we trying to take God's place? That is the real concern. But, um, but it, I think it's okay for us as human beings to play God. Uh, but I don't, but I don't think we should ever try to take God's place. And while the dominion for us as human beings has been granted for us with respect to creation, it's God alone that has dominion over human beings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we can't do what we can to, to love our neighbor as ourself and to, to mitigate pain and suffering and to try to improve the quality of people's lives. That's part of, I think, our calling as Christians, but it, that we, we have to be careful about improperly exercising dominion, which I, I think applies to one of the visions of transhumanism, which is to take control of our, of our evolution as human beings, modifying human beings into uh, – into a new type of entity that may not be recognizable when we get are all said and done. That is, transhumanists look to really modify human beings, creating post-human species that are in our own making. And this is where I'm uncomfortable as a Christian because now what we're seeing is human beings using this technology to take dominion over humanity and that is not within our mandate or within our scope as image bearers. I, I do get a bit hesitant at this point because this, you know, there is some disagreement between the two of us, or maybe there won't be. It depends on 
long ago, but even if it is, that's fine, because it does seem like... Yeah, I understand your concern, but I don't think we could entirely do this, because I really don't think the image of God is something in us that could... that we, by ourselves, would be capable of erasing. I mean, is that what you're thinking would happen, or what? Well, no, no, I, I, I think I agree with you. I don't think that, that the image of God is something that we could erase um, um, in, in ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, um, but when you start talking about computer brain interface technology and things like the brain net, mm-hmm. where, we be, where our identity uh, or, or becomes, dis, in, becomes disassociated from our, our physical body, that's where mm-hmm. I think... Uh, I don't know that we've destroyed the image of God, but that I think it really raises some some very real questions because I do see, um, I mean, I, I don't see us as human beings as a ghost in the machine. I see us as kind of a, a, a an entity where we have a physical and an immaterial aspect to our nature that is intertwined that can't be can't be completely disconnected in, in or disengaged. And so I, I don't think we could obliterate the image of God in us, but I think we could do stuff in such a way that um, we really lose our identity as a, as a human being. I want to get a little bit into economics here, because some of the questions that were raised, I mean, it seems like, you know, who has access to us? wealth? can we? Who will have access to the technology? It's going to be the rich people. And... But at the same time, I mean, I understand that concern, but does that mean that we should abandon, say, a capitalist ethic? Because I think that's done us a whole lot more good than harm overall. Yeah, uh, I, I'm very much in favor of capitalism. I, I think capitalism has to be regulated mm-hmm. uh, just simply because, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the human sin nature. Um, and so, you know, to me, I, I think a regulated form of capitalism is the best economic system that exists. Uh, but, but I think it's important to appreciate how capitalism does create inherently, um, inherently those who have and those who have not from an economic standpoint. And this is why we have programs, I think, that have an element of socialism to them where we're looking for ways to redistribute the wealth uh, to, to try to create a much more equitable world. And this is the idea behind social security and behind taxation and, and, and things like that is that these become safety net programs where we're, we're kind of redistributing the wealth to some degree to try to create a, a you know, a, a society where, there's a greater amount of equity as much as we possibly can, while at the same time allowing people to enjoy the, the benefit and the fruit of their hard work and their and their their labor. And so, but so I'm very much in favor of a regulated form of capitalism. Uh, now, uh, but I think it's important to appreciate how much a role capitalism actually plays in the transhumanist vision, because for somebody like Elon Musk to form a company called Neuralink, where he is going to try to develop this pioneering technology that, again, could fuel um, you know, human enhancements and, and the transhumanist vision, uh, he's got to have people that are investors. <laughs> and those investors want a return on their investment. 
And, and, and so that means that in order for there to be a return on investment, that technology that's developed has to be sold. And the people that are going to be able to afford that technology with the first go around are going to be people that already have, you know, certain economic advantages. And of course, when those people now have greater advantages because they're making use of the technology, they can in turn take that money and invest it again in the next wave of technology. And so that goes on and on and on, where there's always going to be this elite that is going to have first access to the best technology. And and maybe the technology will drop in price and become more broadly available, but it always will be second or third generation technology uh, that that would be available to people. And again, even even when technology drops in in, in in price, it's still going to be, again, uh, inherently uh, inequitable in terms of how it's distributed. And so, to me, you know, uh, the economics and the nature of capitalism is going to, in, in, in itself, in the context of transhumanism, I think, fuel a, a disparity in an inequitable distribution of the technology in our culture. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that kind of thing going on today. I mean, my wife and I go to a car, to a mall, there's a place that for people who can park for electric cars and we charge them. And gosh, wouldn't that be so convenient if I could do that? But the money's just not there. Right, right. I mean, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. So, I mean, if you, what, what, what steps do you think we should take if we're going to go for this kind of technology to make sure this doesn't happen. Well, you know, I, I think I, I, it's really important for us as Christians, again, to, to, to do the hard work of understanding the technology. Part of what we tried to do in Humans 2.0 was to, to write these chapters that would be primers, helping people to understand the, 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 the science behind the technology so that they would be equipped to, to themselves to understand advances that are happening in these very important areas, uh, you know, um, once the book has been written, that they are able to, again, understand these technologies so that they can, again, appreciate the, ethic, the, 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 the subtleties and the nuances of the ethical issues associated with this, but then be able to engage in an intelligent way with our culture. So, to me, I think understanding the technology, understanding the ethics, these are this is hard work to do. There's no question about it. But I don't think we have an option as Christians because whether we like it or not, these advances are going to happen. And we just we if we stand on the sidelines and condemn it, mm-hmm. it's going to uh, not really engender a lot of respect for our particular perspective or worldview. But if people appreciate the fact that we understand the technology, that we are supportive of developing the technology, but that we we have something to say about how the technology should be used and shouldn't be used. We have something to say uh, about you know what technologies we should set on the shelf and what we sh- technologies we should develop because of our worldview and, and the emphasis of our worldview on promoting human progress and flourishing, protecting the the, the marginalized. That, that hopefully people appreciate what we have to say as conversation partners in, in the future as we deliberate how these te- this technology is used. I also think it's important for young people who are interested in science and technology and medicine in the church to go into these areas 
and to be a, a Christian witness uh, in the midst of these advances, to be embedded missionaries in these areas, you know, uh, representing salt and light, helping again to shape not only the development of these technologies, but again, how they're used. You know, it, so to me, I think we've got to engage as Christians, we've got to engage well, because if we don't, then we're going to become victims of a, of a future that we uh, have had no hand in creating, but that we're going to suffer under versus uh, engaging, you know, the, 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 the technology and try to do what we can to shape the future in such a way that the kingdom of God the, the influence of the kingdom of God is felt, is present, and goes forward uh, where the kingdom of God is advancing. Mm -hmm. To me, I see transhumanism as a golden opportunity uh, for the gospel to go forth and for the gospel to be relevant in a fresh way in our world and in our culture uh, because, again, of what transhumanists are trying to accomplish. But I also see these technologies as a wonderful opportunity for us as Christians to appropriate and to use to advance the kingdom of God. And so to me, uh, I, I, I see uh, a very hopeful future uh, if we are willing to do the work of engaging well uh, in helping to shape, again, what that future looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm very much a gamer, so I've been going through this book lately, where well, shock, I'm going through a book, called um, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. And I have the same thing said when I had Kevin shoot on to discover, discuss his book of God and Games, a Christian exploration of video games, where he said, you know, whenever any new technology shows up, it seems Christians immediately jump to suspicion with it. Like he took Kevin shoot for instance, took a show, Poor paragraph in his move in his book about games and give an example of how this was used. Except, oh wait, this wasn't about video games. This was about the movie industry when films came out. I just replaced the words, and it was the exact same thing, like it'd be written today. And I'm sure even when the printing press came out, there were probably some people on the side saying, "Putting books in the hands of ordinary people is not a good idea." Although, having read some books out there, I'm pretty sure they might have had a point about that idea. <laughs> but, but, but I think you do have a great point, though, with that, that we tend to uh, view everything with suspicion. And when we do that, the world moves on without us. And it doesn't mean we jump on board with everything immediately. But we need to have, as I say, a reasoned suspicion. Yeah, and, and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to minimize the, the very real ethical concerns that I have with this technology, but I also don't want to uh, minimize the very, uh, the incredible amount of good that can be done with this technology. And so uh, we have to, as Christians, become agents of redemption, if you will, in that we have to look at how can we take this new technology that is developing and work to redeem it in a way that it benefits human beings and accomplishes God's purpose and, and, and can help us to fulfill the mission that God has called us to as his church. And, and so to me, part of that act of redemption, if you will, is engaging our, our culture with the idea that we recognize the value of the technology 
and, and, and how can we emphasize the good that the technology can use, can be used for? We're, we're bringing redemption when we, you know, to, if you will, to the table when we do that. And on the other hand, how can we help to, to minimize its misuse and to guard against its misuse? Uh, and how can we make sure that everybody gets fair shot at the technology? Those are wonderful things that we can contribute as Christians that, again, spread the influence of, of you know, the kingdom of God. But, but to me, I, I'm also very excited about what this advance means for the gospel. Because when you think about it, there's some remarkable parallels between transhumanism and between the Christian faith and the gospel itself. And if we can help to articulate those parallels and and help people see the connecting points between transhumanism and the gospel, uh, there's a, this is a golden opportunity for the gospel to penetrate our culture um, in, a, in, a, in a potential future where you would think the gospel might have absolutely no place whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as you say that, I think about how we're talking about pretty much superheroes in some ways here in technology, that there's this idea that whenever you have a hero and a villain, somewhere where you do have the gospel. I mean, transhumanism, or what I mean, if it shows them, I mean, it says, Houston, we have a problem. There is something wrong with humanity, and there can be a technological solution sometimes, and there can be other solutions available. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, when you think about, you know, what transhumanists desire. It, I, as a Christian, I, I can affirm what they desire. I can affirm their end game in this, in this sense, that I want to see a world where human pain and suffering is minimized. I want to see a world where human beings flourish, where there is genuine human progress. Uh, I, you know, I, I also want to see a world where, where the marginalized have a voice and, and the marginalized are included and, and that there is true justice those are things that, that I crave. I think those are things that, that transhumanists are craving as well. And I, and I do see science and technology as a good thing that can help in, improve the quality of the lives that we have as human beings. So again, this is something that I would affirm. But also, and also, I, as you point out, Nick, I, I see that humanity has a real problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that, and that problem ultimately is death. You know, I think many transhumanists look at the world and they say that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, that there's something unnatural about our death as human beings, uh, that, that, that transhumanists want some kind of hope, some kind of purpose and destiny for humanity. They see it as being somehow wrong or, or tragic that humanity may no longer exist, that we may one day become extinct or disappear, not only as individuals, but as a as a species as a whole, and 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 you know when you think about this, you know many people that in, embrace transhumanism have a materialistic worldview, and if you hold to a materialistic worldview, the future is very bleak. It, the, the future is without hope, and uh, and what transhumanism offers it for is for somebody who is an atheist who's a materialist, it offers them some type of hope, some type of of purpose and destiny. For themselves as individuals and, and for humanity, and so these are very legit, real needs that every human being has that are being expressed through transhumanism. 
But as we pointed out, technology can never be the ultimate savior. Mm -hmm. Technology can be used for good, but it can never truly save us. Mm. And so our, 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 our hope is not in the future that we can create, but our ultimate hope is in the person of Christ and that utopia will be realized when when Christ returns mm-hmm. and, and, and to usher in, in, in totality the kingdom of God. That's where our ultimate hope resides. And as, as Christians, we don't desire uh, immortality so much as we desire eternal life, which is uh, to know our creator in an intimate way. But as part of that, we, we have the promise of living forever for, for truly being immortal. Mm. And so Christianity offers the very same thing that transhumanism offers, but to me, I think the offer that Christianity is making is a true offer. It's not going to be an offer that will disappoint, but this is, you know, a golden opportunity for the gospel to go forward. You know, I work at Reasons to Believe, and I see so many people who use science as a way to try to sidestep gospel implications for their lives. They, they erect science as a barrier to protect themselves from having to confront the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and what I see with transhumanism is science and technology are actually laying bare the real need that every person has for hope, purpose, and destiny. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where we can, if we're clever and we know and, and we take advantage, this is where the gospel can really penetrate our culture in a world that is influenced by transhumanism, where what we're offering as Christians is actually uh, a, a form of transhumanism as well, where we are offering a utopian future, we're offering immortality, and we're even offering improved bodies, glorified bodies, uh, that are promised us in the resurrection. Well, right now, if we're talking about promises, one of the things that I'd like to receive from you people out there listening is your support here at the deeper waters podcast we are supported by people like you and it means so much to us when you do support us please go to our website deeperwatersprojects.com there's a link help support the work of deeper waters christian ministries you click on that and you get taken to a ministry of risen jesus the ministry of mike lacona and have you gone to the right place yes you have you make your donation, you can get in touch with me, or my wife, Ari, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. That donation will be received by us. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some e-books that I, one that I've written, um, The Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, some I've co-written, um, Groundless, a look at Dan Barker, who I debated about six months ago on the existence of God. Um, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to Rich Generations Questions, a couple of books on inerrancy, defying inerrancy, contextualizing inerrancy, and for mention of ours project, another one definitely worth mentioning. Ironic, pun not intended, but it came out great. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see it take place. Um, Dr. Vanna, do you have an organization that you'd like to see people donate to? Although I'm pretty sure I can guess what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I work for um, a ministry called Reasons to Believe. Mm-hmm. And so if people want to learn more about our ministry, they can go to reasons.org and uh, um, 
we have available to people that visit that website all types of resources that they can access for no cost. Uh, we have uh, blog articles that we're publishing several a week on our website uh, that deal with the latest discoveries in science and what they mean for the Christian faith, that we have um, videos and podcasts that people can access for no cost, as well as uh, a web store where people can purchase books um, that we've written about science and the Christian faith. Uh, so it, we, we try our, our best to make available to people resources that they can use to reach people in our culture who are scientifically minded, scientifically influenced, showing how we can use science as a way to build a bridge to the gospel. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, we are uh, a nonprofit, a Christian nonprofit. Uh, 90% of our income comes from donations. And so uh, anything that people can do to support our work is much appreciated. But th that, that money that is used is, is essentially an investment in uh, the Great Commission because we see our role at Reasons to Believe not to be apologists, but to be evangelists, where uh, our work in apologetics is serving the, the mission of evangelism for the church at large. Mm -hmm. And I I think I said this to Dr. Samples when he was on last time. It's, I'm really grateful for the relationship that Deeper Waters and Reasons to Believe has together. Because whenever you all have a new book come out, I think I'm usually one of the first ones to get it and happy to promote it every single time. Well, thank you, Nick, and, and we appreciate your partnership and friendship, and mm -hmm. and you know uh, the the ministry that you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 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 an honor to to walk alongside someone like you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you you are an encouragement to me uh, in every in every sense of the word. Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters Podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. Let's get back into the book here. Now, one topic I think we definitely have discussed about, it's not a main feature in your book, but it's one that we, we will want to talk about, and that's, because a lot of people are mad. When I was around 18 or so, I remember a movie coming out that I really, really love. For the longest time, it was, it's still one of my favorite ones. Right now, I think I'm, my favorite one might be Ready Player One, which I thought was just awesome. But this was The Matrix movie. And I remember when Matrix Reloaded, the sequel came out, I was going to see it twice. That day it came out, once in the morning with my friends, in the evening with my dad again. Didn't work out that way because, lo and behold, that happened to be the day a storm came through and knocked out power to the mall where the movie theater was. But one of the themes of the Matrix is how mankind marveled at their development of artificial intelligence. And, lo and behold... Something went wrong, and artificial intelligence turned on us. So what relationship does artificial intelligence have with transhumanism, and how should Christians think about artificial intelligence? Yeah, and uh, you know, one thing that we didn't really tackle in, in depth at all in the book was 
uh, artificial intelligence. And part of the reason for that is because in a technical sense, it's not truly part of, of, trans, of the transhumanist vision in this mm-hmm. sense that, that uh, it, it, the vision of transhumanism is to modify human beings' biological makeup to create ultimately uh, a, a collection of post-human species. And, and now artificial intelligence may be part of the technology that is employed to, you know, to enable computer brain interfaces to be more effective and things like that. But technically, AI uh, is the way people think about it, where there are robots or these machines that attain sentience is really not technically part of transhumanism. But it is part of a potential post-human future for many people uh, where they see uh, one day machines developing sentience and if they do develop sentience that then they should made should be afforded the same types of rights that we have as human beings uh, and so AI is very much part of our future uh, and it's, it's part of a post-human future potentially but um, I don't see that as, as technically part of transhumanism and in fact uh, there is somebody at Reasons to Believe named Jeff Zwierink, who's an astrophysicist, who's actually mm-hmm. working on a, a book right now on artificial intelligence. To me, I think uh, it, AI is, is important enough and is uh, in and of its is unique en- compared to transhumanism, uh, unique enough that it warrants its own treatment. So that is actually a book that is underway right now. But we did have one... Uh, small section in the book where we we do have a very brief discussion of artificial intelligence simply because I knew that people would want to have some something for on um, artificial intelligence in the book and uh, and so anyway um, we do address artificial intelligence but but really not to the full degree that it merits mm-hmm. now you also have something on artificial wombs. Is that worth discussing here some? Yeah, we, we could definitely do that. Um, um, and maybe before we do that, I just wanted to bring up, you know, one other point with artificial intelligence, and that is okay. that that I think something that we need to be cautious about, and this is a point that I make in the book, is that uh, I don't know that you're ever going to create a machine that is truly sentient, because I my view of the mind is that it's an immaterial aspect of our nature uh, that's distinct from the brain, and that 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 that, that we're never going to be able to replicate those qualities of the mind in a machine environment, uh, uh, because I th- I think what makes us ultimately uh, sentient and 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 gives us our unique nature as human beings is the fact that we have a mind brain spirit trichotomy, if you will, where mm-hmm. the spirit and the mind. Uh, can interface and the brain and the mind can interface and that we're, we're not again a, a ghost in the machine but there's kind of this inter- entwinement of all three qualities of our, our nature and I think because of that you're never going to be able to create a machine that is truly like a human being but you could create a machine that is highly accomplished at mimicking human beings to the point that we could not tell the difference between a human being and a machine and I think Part of what's fat, uh, influencing this is our tendency as human beings to anthropomorphize. Um, as human beings, we possess a quality called theory of mind, which makes us unique compared to other animals. No other animal 
has uh, theory of mind capability or if it or in the way that human beings have and what i mean by that is that as theory of mind allows me as a human being to recognize that other people have minds just like mine and they have a I, I, and I can anticipate what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and I have this desire to tether my mind to their mind, to connect our minds together, to gr- to create a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And 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 as a, a result of that theory of mind capability, we have a tendency towards anthropomorphism, where we look at machines and we give machines human-like qualities. We look at animals and we give animals human-like qualities. We attribute mm-hmm. to them human thoughts, human feelings, human emotions, when in fact animals don't have those, those machines don't have them. And so if we have a machine that is more and more like us uh, in, in some sense or can mimic us, because of our tendency towards anthropomorphism, we're going to treat it as if it is like a human being when in fact it is is fundamentally and qualitatively distinct uh, from a human being. And and so I think we just want to be cautious uh, about how we view uh, AI systems as we go forward, keeping in, 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 in front of us, again, the fact that we, that these mach- we may not be able to distinguish a difference between a machine and, and a human being not so much because there's there's not an intrinsic or inherent difference, it's because of our theory of mind capability. In other words, that which makes us truly unique and exceptional as a human being, ironically, can cause us to, to actually see things to be exceptional like us when in fact they're not. Yeah, I, I think some, what you're talking about some also has been called the uh, Disneyfication of our culture, where we've seen all these movies, like there was even a far side comic I remember reading where it says, to this day, every forest animal remembers where they were when they first heard that Bambi's mother had been shot. And, and you look and you see an animal go through something horrible on a TV show or a movie, and you think where that's the way it is, and the animals really don't go through it. I mean, of course, it doesn't just like cruelty to animals, but it says we can't treat animals just like they're lesser human beings. And dare I say it, maybe sometimes we make the obvious mistake and treat God like he's just a great big human being. Mm. Yeah, very good point. Now, uh, Go you're, ahead. you're mentioning artif- artificial wounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that is a, a, a technology that um, is part of the transhumanist vision that traces all the way back to um, the, the very early days of the transhumanist movement in a book written by J.B.S. Haldane, the, British, the, the famous British geneticist uh, at the, at the, in the early 1900s. He wrote a book called The Atlas where he laid out essentially the very first transhumanist vision, where he argued that eventually in the future we're going to develop a good enough understanding of genetics uh, that we could, in principle, essentially manipulate our own genetic makeup as human beings, altering ourselves, taking control of our own evolution, shaping human beings into what we would want human beings to be. And that he also argued that we could one day eventually create technology that would allow us to produce artificial wombs that would allow for the process of 
cons- uh, of human uh, conception and, and embryological growth and development to take place independent of, of individual human beings in an artificial womb environment. And so this is this was the original transhumanist vision. And so artificial womb technology has always been kind of connected to transhumanism. Now, unlike genetic engineering or computer brain interfaces or anti-aging technology, there has been work in artificial womb technology, but it's not enjoyed the same level of success as these other areas. And we're nowhere near ever seeing artificial womb technology come into play in terms of, of service to the transhumanist vision, at least in the next several decades. And it's only been recently that anybody has made any kind of progress towards developing artificial womb technology uh, as it applies to animal uh, model systems. Uh, and, and I talk about in the, in the special focus section on artificial wombs in the book, that some work done by a scientist at um, the Children's Hospital of, of Philadelphia where they were working with sheep and were able to develop an artificial womb that allowed sheep to, to go to to develop in the um, in the artificial womb successfully, uh, going from what would correspond to about 22 weeks in a human pregnancy to essentially the point of birth. Uh, and so this is a really exciting advance, advancement that could be used to treat uh, children that are born prematurely uh, producing improved outcomes for the, uh, premature births. Uh, but uh, we're nowhere near um, we're nowhere near uh, seeing, um, you know, artificial womb technology really uh, providing an impetus for transhumanism. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, uh, there are uh, there's a very interesting intersection between feminism and transhumanism when it does come to artificial womb technology, where many women view uh, the fact that they uh, are the the, the gender in the human species that gives birth as actually being a biological limitation that tech, they, that in which technology needs to overcome, where they see artificial womb technology essentially overcoming that limitation that human, that human women uniquely suffer from, and that is essentially pregnancy. And, and they see that pregnancy as a source of inequality in our society, and that artificial womb technology would free them from the, the shackles of, of essentially uh, having to be the ones in, in, in that give birth to children. And so it's a very interesting interplay between transhumanism and feminism that is associated with artificial womb technology. Uh, but to me, you know, just like these other technologies, artificial womb technology could be used for an enormous amount of good uh, in terms of impacting uh, you know, premature births. I actually see it as a pro-life technology. I think when artificial womb technology actually matriculates into a clinical setting, it's going to probably uh, uh, reduce the, the 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 well. Right now, um, a pregnancy that terminates prior to 22 weeks is a, a pregnancy in which the fetus is never going to come to full term is never going to be viable. But with the artificial womb technology, you very well could push the, the time frame for a viable birth to even earlier than, than 22 weeks. And once we start doing that, you're looking at that encroaching upon 
essentially abortion laws and the time frame for when abortions would be allowed. And you could easily even see artificial womb technology being used to rescue children that have been aborted. Uh, and so it could create a very interesting uh, milieu for abortion rights and pro-life debate uh, where the technology could actually come into play where you could even have women who didn't want to be pregnant willingly giving up their child, but instead of aborting it, having that child be placed in a in an artificial womb uh, carried to, to full term. So anyway, I, I see artificial womb technology as, um, you know, Again, being used for enormous amount of good, it does have a connection to transhumanism, though I don't think it's going to be much of an influence in the transhumanist vision in the next decade or so. But as this technology develops, I, w- I hope Christians can be uh, clever enough to recognize that this is actually a, a technology that could be to co- that could have a, an interesting mm-hmm. and prominent role in the pro-life, pro-choice debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had uh, Christopher Kexer on my show back in 2017 on his book, The Ethics of Abortion. And he had a section on this, and he had the similar views that this kind of argumentation could help settle the the abortion debate to an extent. And at the same time, I'm humorously thinking, however, had I remember seeing an email about joke headlines of a possible future, and when this baby born naturally scientists dumped (laughs) yeah well yeah we we are entering into a brave new world whether we like it or not right Mm -hmm. so what are who are also some of the people that we should be keeping an eye on when we're talking about transhumanism who are the big names in the movement well uh you know in in uh, there's a chapter in our book uh where um, my co-author Ken Samples does a great job of kind of delineating what transhumanism is, where Ken makes the argument that transhumanism really needs to be thought of as um, as a worldview in and of itself. Uh, but Ken always points out how how amazed he is at, is at people who are advocating for transhumanism because these are not uh, kind of oddball kooks; these are legitimate scientists and technologists who are deeply committed to the transhumanist vision, but it's people like Nick Bostrom, who's kind of maybe the transhumanist transhumanist, where he's a, a philosopher at Oxford University, and he, he's the director of Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute and Artificial Intelligence, and uh, he is a, one of the leading advocates of, of transhumanism, as is Aubrey de Grey, He's a, a, a biogerontologist that has done pioneering work in a- anti-aging and applying that to the transhumanist vision. Yeah, I think he so- also has a, something called the Methuselah Institute, doesn't he? He does, exactly. That's exactly right, which is interesting because I, for all I can tell, the Gray is, is an atheist, but he's uh, you know, uh, making use of biblical imagery to to advocate for, you know, extended life expectancies. You have James Hughes, who's a sociologist who wrote a book called Citizen Cyborg, which is a provocative book where he lays out kind of a transhumanist vision for uh, what uh, our our socioeconomic and political framework would look like in a post-human future. Of course, Ray Kurzweil, who has this idea of the singularity uh, happening in 2040, where 
machines and humans would meld together into a, a new type of entity that would have immortality. Uh, uh, and Kevin Warwick is another uh, person I find interesting. He's a British engineer who is um, also uh, an advocate of uh, kind of a do-it-yourself uh, type of, of transhumanism. Uh, he is one of the, the people that, that is inspiring a group of individuals called Grinders, which take technology and interface technology to themselves. It's kind of like a do-it-yourself uh, type of uh, modification where they are making use of technology that is becoming less and less expensive and more and more powerful and looking for ways to interface that technology to their, to their bodies kind of in, in a way that's akin to what people are doing with computer brain interface technologies. So Kevin Warwick is of particular interest or a particular note. Now, we've talked about how some of this stuff is, some stuff is right here that we wouldn't have dreamed of early on in life. Like, I'm able to move around and function normally thanks to a steel rod on my spine. That would have been unheard of 100 years ago. David Wood is hoping that within a few years, the FDA will make available some gene treatment to, as he said, cure a fatal condition his sons have. How much longer do we have to wait for some of this other technology? Could we see some of this stuff actually come about in our own lifetimes? Oh, oh I think so. I, I think that the progress that's happening in, for example, in, in gene editing technology is mm-hmm. happening at a breakneck pace. You already have one claimed example where a a scientist from China uh, presumably did gene editing on human embryos and uh, you know those embryos were implanted into the the womb of a a surrogate and carried to full term at least this is the claim it's not been formally verified scientifically but it seems like it as if it's a legitimate claim and so this is already an example of where the technology is being used for potentially uh, as a way to to eliminate um, HIV from the human gene pool uh, where, you know, you could engineer children that would be resistant, inherently resistant to the AIDS virus. So, you know, I think we're going to be seeing uh, this technology matriculate very quickly into a clinical setting uh, uh, in the near future. Uh, And with computer brain interfaces, again, the, the advances that are happening are happening so rapidly, it's hard to keep track mm-hmm. of them. So I wouldn't be surprised if we would see that technology among us sooner rather than later. And I think it's only a matter of time before we start seeing anti-aging cocktails being administered uh, in, a, in a clinical setting as well, where there's actually bona fide data that supports the anti-aging benefit. So uh, whether we like it or not, this is a reality that is upon us right now and uh, this is the time for us as Christians to really engage uh, it, it, because this is the time where we're going to have the greatest hope of having genuine influence on uh, what is to come. Mm-hmm. I, I can't but be amazed by the, the advancements I've seen in my own lifetime. I said we're my family, my wife and I are both gamers. Me much more now actually even she is. And when we got together with our in law with my in laws for Labor Day weekend, I actually brought over 
a console system with me entirely because I used to have to. We joke about how in the past I'd. I remember playing my Game Boy in the backseat of my parents' car, and it'd be late at night, and anytime I saw a, a streetlight overhead, it's like, okay, I can see a little bit more what's going on now. And now that's no longer an issue. And by being a console, I mean, we have a Switch. I brought that with me. And most of us can play games on our phone nowadays. And it, it's more and more of a marvel today. And now it looks like you're telling me that I could practically wind up in a day where, you know, the superheroes that we see on TV and movies, that could be something real to an extent, but then along with a scary thought that some of those supervillains could be real as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, to your point, I mean, it's amazing, you know, even what, what I've seen in my lifetime, I was born in 1963, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, believe it or not, when I was growing up, the phone that we had in our house when I was in high school and college was a, a rotary phone that was in which the receiver was connected by a cord uh, to the phone. And mm-hmm. I used to be envious of some of my friends who had phones with really, really long cords so they could actually go into another room to talk mm-hmm. on the phone. And I can remember when Pong came out mm-hmm. and going over to my friend's house in high school and being so impressed with this you know, really basic uh, almost laughable video game, but we were so amazed at what we were seeing when my friend, you know, rolled out Pong, and we would spend hours sitting in front of a TV playing that game. Uh, you know, I didn't. We growing up in my household when I was in high school, we didn't have a microwave oven. Those things were just becoming commercially available, and so I, you know, it's amazing to me uh, when I was a graduate student doing my PhD. Uh, this was when comp- personal computer systems were becoming available to people. And uh, I, I remember having to get special permission from the dean's office to write my dissertation on, a, on an Apple SE2 uh, system using, you know, uh, basically, so- you know, a word processing software as opposed to typing it out. I had to get special permission from the dean's office to turn in something that uh, a dissertation that I printed out on a dot matrix computer, a printer. Uh, So that's, you know, uh, so it's amazing to me to see where we're at right now today in terms of technology development. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just progressing at an exponential rate. And this is true not only when it comes to you know, again, computer systems and things like computer brain interface, but in terms of biotechnology, the advances that are taking place are just mind-blowing. And I don't see how anybody could be truly an expert in these areas anymore because the advances are happening so rapidly. How could you ever keep up with these advances, let alone develop, again, genuine expertise like we were afforded the luxury of developing when I was a graduate student where you had time to learn and, and develop and master technologies, there's, there's no time. And, and this really frightens, I think, people that are interested in bioethics because the advances are happening faster than anybody can truly understand them and then let alone have proper ethical deliberation about them. Uh, and so, you know, this is frightening for, for bioethicists because what it means is that these advances are happening without the proper engagement of, of, of ethical thinking uh, as these advances are taking place. They're just happening almost in, in a vacuum 
though there are very real ethical implications that nobody seems to be thinking through uh, as the progress is being made. So what are your thoughts about the future now? Last question, are you looking forward to it? Is it dread about it, a bit of both? What is it? No, I, I'm very excited about what the future holds. I'm excited, again, uh, as the transhumanist framework becomes, I think, um, mainstreamed within our culture. Because, again, I think this is a, a golden opportunity for Christians to engage our culture in a way that I think can actually change the perception that many people have about Christianity, where they can really see us as real contributors to the to scientific and technological development, where we are not only contributing scientifically, but also are bringing to the table a credible ethical perspective that really helps in a positive way to shape the use of the technology. But I'm also excited, too, because I think, uh, ironically, transhumanism, which is trying to undermine human exceptionalism, is actually going to make a, a case for human exceptionalism unlike we've ever seen before where the idea of human exceptionalism is compelling, and I think it's going to make the gospel meaningful and relevant in ways that it hasn't been in recent years. Uh, and so, ironically, the, the transhumanist vision, which is seeking after an alternative to the gospel, is actually going to make the gospel more meaningful and relevant than ever before. The book is Humans 2.0, Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives perspectives on transhumanism kindle version is 999 as of the time of this recording the paperback is 1995 dr rana do you have a blog a website an email a way people can get in touch if they want to find out more yeah if people want to find out more i would just send them to reasons.org that's the best place to go mm -hmm. i'm also active on facebook and twitter so people can look me up there and uh I also have a blog that's hosted on the Reasons to Believe website called The Cell's Design, where I write about science and faith issues. So mm -hmm. those are some ways that people can, can interact uh, with me uh, after this broadcast. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters podcast? Uh, at, if there's one final thought, it, it, and that would be this, is that as Christians, I think we, we want to always be aware of what's happening in our culture, that's happening in in technology, and look for ways to build bridges between our worldview as Christians uh, and what's happening in our culture and our world. And I think if we adopted a posture of br being bridge builders as opposed to being people that stand on the sideline and comment uh, about what's happening in our culture um, in a, in uh, in a condemning with a condemning attitude, I think Christianity would have a much better and bigger prominence in our world, and the Great Commission would be accomplished much sooner. So we should think of ourselves as, as, as those who are looking to build bridges. We should think of ourselves as having a ministry of reconciliation where we look for every point of contact we can between that's what's happening in our culture and the gospel. Well, Dr. Rona, it's been great having you back on here again. And... Judging by the way things work between us and Reasons to Believe, I'm pretty sure we'll see you back here again sometime. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, thanks for everything that you do, and uh, uh, God bless you, my friend. And I remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Michelle Cretella on, talking about transgenderism this time. For now, I'm Nick Peters. 
I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off.